Good evening. Thank you, everybody, for being here tonight, and thank you to Sydney Ideas for co-hosting this event with us. I am Lucia Sorbera from the Department of Arabic Language and Cultures in this university, and I'm a member of the Religion, State, and Society Network, which is co-hosting this event. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadical people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral land that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of the country. The panel of tonight is part of the series A Continuing Spring, Arab and Australian Views on Social Justice, Equal Economic Development, and Cultures of Freedom. The series is sponsored by the University of Sydney's Religion, State and Society Network, the Department of Government and International Relations, School of Social and Political Sciences, the Department of Arabic Language and Cultures, the School of Languages and Cultures, and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, and by the Commonwealth through the Council of Australian Arab Relations, which is part of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. The recent terrorist attacks at Bardo Museum in Tunis uh, shocked global public opinion. They also shed light on the courage of Tunisian citizens who reacted spontaneously in pacifist street demonstrations. Once again, in Tunisia and Egypt, and in the so-called Arab Spring states, and not only that, because we have seen the civil society reacting also in Kenya against uh, violence, uh, Civil society has remained vigilant against violence and authoritarianism. The years of mobilization and unrest witnessed in the past four years are the result of a long wave of underground mobilization which is rooted in the trade unions and social movements, labor movements, students' movements, women independent NGOs, and human rights organizations. Today, they face multiple challenges in the form of the neo-authoritarian militarization of public space, jihadist movements, uh, sectarianism, financial crisis, and economic stagnation. The panel of tonight brings together three distinguished scholars who have direct experience uh, of the uprisings in uh, Tunisia, Egypt, and Bahrain, and I would like to thank them for being here with us. Dr. Ala Shehabi is a researcher, writer, and pro-democracy activist. She is the co-founder of Bahrain Watch, an NGO working on transparency and accountability. She has a PhD in economics from Imperial College London and previously worked as a policy analyst at the Rand Corporation and as a lecturer in economics at the Bahrain Institute for Banking and Finance. Uh, her book, uh, Bahrain Uprising by Zed Book, uh, is forthcoming uh, in November 2015. She has written in The Guardian Foreign Policies and she contributes to a number of online platforms, including Open Democracy, and she's frequently appearing in the media, including BBC Hard Talk. Walid Al-Hashab is Associate Professor and Coordinator of Arabic Studies, York University, Canada. In 2004, he edited the collective volume Arabe, Sortir du Marasme, published in Paris, Edition Corlet. 
Since then, he has been published extensively on Arabic cultures and Islam, particularly national identities and modernity, the politics of mysticism, self-representation in cinema, literature, and popular culture. He's the co-editor of ACANS, the Arab-Canadian Studies Research Group based at the University of Ottawa. He is also one of the co-founders of the NGO, Mr. Dawla Madaneya, advocating Madaneya secularism in Egypt, and was the group's Facebook page administration, administrator between 2011 and 2013. Indeed, Larbi Sadiqi is Associate Professor of International Affairs at Qatar University. He has received his academic training at Sydney University and the Australian National University, where he read for a PhD on Islamist movement's notions of democracy. The resulting doctoral thesis and the longitudinal type research, still in progress on the same issue, are to be published in a book on Islamist conceptions of democracy, with special reference to Islamists in Egypt, Tunisia, and Jordan. He is the editor of the Routledge Studies in the Middle East, Democratization and Government, and uh, he has a very long list of publications, uh, including uh, um, The Search for Arab Democracy, Rethinking Arab Democratization, he is co-author of Europe and Tunisia, and a number of uh, edited books, and uh, he is the editor of recently published Routledge Handbook on the Arab Spring, forthcoming in, published in 2015. He is completing now a book on Tunisia's revolution and democratization, and co-authoring a book on Nahda and democracy. And I would like to start my questions from Larbi and this conversation uh, from, from Tunisia, which was the first country where the uprising started. And, uh, and which is described today as the only Arab Spring country where notwithstanding serious crises such as the assassination of leading political activists, and we remember Shokri Belaid in February 2013 and Mohammed Brahmi in July 2013, and then the Bardo attacks in March 2015, uh, but we say that their democratic transition is ongoing. So could you please outline the historical, political, and social roots of this process? And would you agree in describing Tunisia today as the country uh, where we a developed and substantial democracy is developing? And uh, as you are an expert of uh, Islamist movements, what is the role of a Nahda party in this process? Thank you. Thank you. Um, I guess the, uh, to introduce Tunisia, First of all, like you've got like the terms of reference when we uh, talk about the Arab Spring, that it is not to be seen as a monolithic um, movement. Um, in fact, we can say that you've got uh, many Arab Springs, and Tunisia, I guess, really uh, presents us with lots of specificity. And I guess really when you're trying uh, to focus on that specificity, the one thing that is so striking about Tunisia is the fact that it was founded by a woman. So if you go back like you know, 814 BC, you'll find that the, uh, the, the Carthaginian uh, princess Elisa uh, turns, up, you know, turns up on the shores of, of Tunisia and founds a state. And I think that really sets the scene for a different imaginary, political imaginary. 
Um, integral to that political imaginary is, of course, like an inclusiveness. Um, anyone can come into Tunisia and, I guess, really um, create some kind of community. Um, the, the mix of, of, of um, Tunisians, you've got like, you know, Romanesque, uh, you've got Turkish, you've got Arab, you've got uh, French, and I think that mix is really uh, enriching um, to Tunisians. So really the persona, you know, of a country, uh, if we talk about countries you know, as um, members of an international community, you'll find that really it resonates, you know, with this sense, ethos of, of toleration. Uh, and one scholar actually had occasion to talk about this, that you've got like, you know, this twin toleration uh, in Tunisia, working in tandem with a whole heap of other ethics, including um, the hermeneutical talent that Tunisians um, have developed in, you know, in, in the sense that they uh, initiated some kind of understanding of Islam, which you don't find in other places. And as early as the 1930s, 40s, you had a scholar by the name of uh, Tahar ibn Ashur, who actually looked at the Quran and came up like, you know, with an understanding that you know, you've got like the uh, immutable uh, aspect of, of, of Islam, which I guess really no one can actually touch, but that there is like, you know, so much space, you know, for uh, utilizing hermeneutical talent, uh, exegesis, you know, for, I guess, really refashioning Islam to, um, I guess, really to meet expectations according to time and space. So really, when we are trying, you know, to um, depict a picture of why Tunisians were first to uh, begin, you know, that, that movement, we have really to understand, you know, this lineage, this intellectual lineage, and this also ethical lineage. I sometimes refer to what's called like the gender monument, the fact that you've got a component of society in Tunisia that is so visible and so proactive. And I guess really you can say that uh, Bourguiba, the, the first national mentor, had lots to do with that, especially when they founded the Personal Estates Code in 1956. It was like the most advanced piece of legislation that gave women uh, lots of rights, which you don't find in other places, including the banning of, of polygamy. And I think that's really where, we, where you begin this workshop, the workshop you know, of creating society. Because like in, in, I mean, this is really the challenge you have to ask, you know, when uh, contemplating the Arab Spring and looking at the variety of states confronted with this uh, uh, movement, uh, do they have a society? Because really sometimes like you see the, the, the building blocks of, of a society, but you don't really have what we call in Arabic mujtama. Um, and this is really interesting. And I guess really if you, if you want to, to uh, define what is a mujtama, what is a society, it is basically a community that has got the uh, mechanisms, the ethics, the intellect of self-regeneration, um, and I guess really included in the ability, the capacity of self-regeneration is also the capacity actually now of self-protection, self-organization, et cetera, et cetera. I guess really there was uh, a guy by the name of uh, Robert Putnam, and at some stage he invoked the notion of social capital. And I guess really this is really the, the, the story of the Arab Spring, as far as Tunisia is concerned, um, resonates powerfully with this ability to actually uh, create, um, you know, those ethics, those um, 
the, the, the building blocks of, of social capital, compromise, moderation, uh, the ability to actually accept even defeat. Uh, we have a, an Islamist movement, as Lochian asked me about, the Nahda uh, Party, which is the Islamist party in, in Tunisia, probably like the, the only political party of, of Islamist lineage that can accept uh, defeat. And um, recently I was in Tunisia and I spoke to Rashid Ghannouchi, he's like one of the founding fathers of, of, of this movement. And, and he said to me like he never uh, basically uh, hesitated to ring uh, Beji Qaid Sipsi, the octogenarian president, and say, look, congratulations, you've won. You can actually really go on you know, with forming government, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that is really um, you know, a historic moment. We've never had that at all in, in Tunisia. So the fact that really you get basically you know, to um, have shared values that is like the one thing that's the missing link in the chain of, of this movement we call the Arab Spring, is the absence of shared values. If you cannot share values, you cannot share a country, you cannot share basically, I guess with the hope of building a nation that is capable of self-regeneration. So really for me, I've, I've always uh, looked at Tunisia, Egypt uh, as places which um, have been for 150 years trying, attempting to um, come to this moment to, to, to actually uh, declare the, 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 the birth of, of, of society. Um, and I guess really what makes, I guess, really the, the Tunisian case a little bit specific is the fact that it is, in a way, quasi-organic revolution because really it's, there's some kind of poetic justice in it that it is bottom-up. It's got nothing to do with the elite. Like it cut out elite vanity, uh, because remember, like always, you know, we, we, we are confronted with theories of um, where change comes from, who drives change, what are the vehicles of, of change, and here we have basically a bottom-up, you know, movement, uh, mostly, mostly uh, driven by trade unions, and that is really unique, because when we talk about trade unions in Tunisia, we talk, I guess, really of the intersection between that North African Mediterranean uh, southern rim of the Mediterranean and the connection, you know, they established, you know, with um, the European know-how. So in a way, like, there is some kind of borrowing uh, in terms of organization of uh, trade unions, which began 100 years ago. So really, trade unions in Tunisia were at the forefront of that movement to confront authoritarianism and unhinge you know, that um, hegemony or hegemony um, in, in, in Tunisia. So I think really what, what you've got, you've got like a set of, of, of um, factors, dynamics, which are really specific to uh, the Tunisian case, but really that's not really, you know, to couch or to present the Tunisian case, you know, uh, you know in, in exceptionalist terms, we'd like, you know, when we talk about things uh, Middle Eastern, to get away from this model of, um, I guess really uh, engaging in any discourse that makes uh, Middle Easterners or Tunisians or Egyptians or others uh, living as if they were uh, on uh, a separate um, island. Um, I think really uh, today all of us you know, are trying you know, still you know, to come to grips with, with this. For me, the way I see it, I think this is really the beginning of something really big. It's almost like really a train that has just like left you know, the, you know, the uh, the, the, the train station, it's unstoppable, 
and I think it's uh, a rehearsal of, you know, of other things. Um, sometimes when you talk about the Arab Spring, you know, you need, you know, to um, mention some caveats. And one of them, and this really is something that I, you know, throw out there, you know, for you, I guess, you know, to think about, I guess, really the, the relevance of violence in all of this, because in Tunisia, it's true, Tunisia has gone a long way, better than others, uh, you know, in Libya or Egypt or Syria, you know, in trying, you know, to set in motion a process, you know, of democracy and democratization. Yet Tunisia also provides uh, Daesh or IS or ISIS with 3,000 fighters. And I guess really, for me, I'm still like, cannot, I don't really have answers. I've got really questions why Tunisians in the country that you've got actually, um, the modicum of a democratizing uh, community, why do you end up you know, with this state of affairs whereby uh, youth in Tunisia are actually renouncing you know, this revolution, um, abandoning uh, this revolution and going you know, to places to die? This is really a huge question. But really, also, it's, it's really about our own perception of violence. Um, we have really to, to look or rethink violence you know, in, in a different light that really, first of all, violence is really integral to any political uh, imaginary. We don't have, as yet, a model of politics that precludes violence. Uh, if, whether you know, you're working with the barbarian templates or you're working you know, with Arabo Islamic you know, templates of, violence, you know, of, of politics, all of them, and this is, I guess, really the tragedy of, of politics and state making and state unmaking, you always have got this component, the, you know, the, the component of violence being part and parcel, you know, of, of you know, uh, any kind of uh, political movement, historical movement, etc., etc. This really at one level. Uh, so there is violence. You've got basically a mobilizable component of marginals, people who feel they're really on the periphery of politics, and they're really easy actually to recruit, you know, to, to all kinds of things. When we talk about the Arab Spring, therefore, we have really, you know, to do a little bit of disaggregation in the sense that you're talking about something that is both uh, simultaneously civil, civic, but also unruly. Uh, and this is really important, you know, so you cannot really lose sight, you know, of, of, the, of this point. As I said, I'm really uh, trying, you know, to interrogate these, you know, uh, dynamics. I don't really have answers, you know, as yet. And I guess really uh, the other thing that is, is really striking about, you know, this is that we don't have a, an intellectual revolution. This is really a bottom-up revolution that I guess really in, in, in the terminology of Scott Paul, it's not a social revolution. Um, it has not really um, begun with an intellectual movement. It's not really like say, the Prague Spring where we had intellectuals, playwrights and others. We don't have the analog of Vaclav Havel or, or, or others. And I guess really we're hoping that perhaps the Arab Spring would deliver you know, a moment of, I guess, really self-organization, self-help, the networks, the intellectual networks that can actually build the, the, the momentum first, you know, for, I guess, really uh, refashioning society along um, democratic lines, but also for building, you know, that intellect, the social capital needed to, um, I guess, really thrust society into this foray, you know, of, you know, rebuilding uh, polity, economy, society, culture, 
in a way that can actually deepen democracy. It's really true, like Tunisia has got a democracy, or at least like the incipient uh, fledgling democracy, but really that will need you know, the glue that will make it stick for a long time. And that glue has to be ethical, it's got to be intellectual, but also like you know, the people that feel like this is something worth fighting for within Tunisia. That means like you know, the youth who are today like going to Syria, Iraq, wherever, you know, to fight, you know, would actually think about staying in Tunisia because really it is something that they believe in, that, uh, because really that is really a uh, very uh, troubling, you know, factor uh, that, you know, the youth of Tunisia have got doubts about this revolution to the point that they go and take um, arms, you know, or, or fight somewhere else. I think I'll leave it at that. Thank you, yes. Thank you for underlying uh, first the, you know, that we are not in front of a monolithic movement uh, and, the, and the historical legacy, you know, the, the, gene the genealogies of these revolutionary movements. And uh, starting from this point, I would like to move to Walid. Uh, and just because, you know, since the dawn of modernity, uh, the trajectories of Egypt and Tunisia have been perceived as parallels, you know, and this was also the case for 2011. But today it seems that the trajectories uh, are becoming quite different. You know, the, uh, the movement uh, and the activists who propelled the revolution uh, are now in jail or in exile or, uh, you know, they, they or can't dead. even, or dead, and they can't even protest. So where is uh, Egypt going? And, uh, and what are the spaces for political activism in Egypt today? Well, thank you, Lucia, for... Uh inviting us and for organizing this. Um, I think it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to, to talk about uh, something that touches uh, the hearts of uh, many people around the world, particularly in, in the Arab world, um, to talk about the so-called um, Arab uh, Spring or Arab Springs, as uh, Professor Sadiqi has, uh, has put it. Uh, there is something about uh, uh, the connection, let's say, the, the Tunisian-Egyptian exceptionalism that I think is true. I, I have to be careful about this because I was born in Egypt. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to be um, critical of nationalist discourses uh, that are repeated in, in schools in, in Egypt, and I'm, I assume they do the same thing in Tunisia, about how modernity uh, started somehow um, by mid-19th century in, uh, in Egypt and in Tunisia. That's, that's probably true, and it's also probably true for uh, Lebanon as well. Uh, around the mid-19th century, an intellectual uh, that we can call today secular movement uh, emerged in, in Lebanon as well. Um, but uh, definitely in the case of the uprisings that started uh, at the end of 2010, uh, beginning of 2011, uh, Tunisia set the tone and, and the example for the rest of the Arab world. Uh, because one of every four Arabs is Egyptian, we tend to forget that it was actually something that started in, in Tunisia, and I think we, we should acknowledge that. Um, however, the, the narrative, if I were to, uh, to present a narrative of, uh, of the uh, Arab Springs, I would not try to, to present this as a homogenous uh, story, starting with uh, major uh, intellectual figures who either imported uh, ideas from the West about democratization, secularization, 
uh, or worked on medieval texts, uh, trying to renew them. Uh, I think we have really two uh, different movements that both try to uh, renew society based on uh, some intellectual work and a renewal of discourses of ethics. Uh, but we really have the foundations of, on the one hand, what you may call uh, you know, a liberal, uh, a secular, westernized uh, movement, and then a, a conservative, uh, traditionalist uh, uh, movement. And that's important because uh, that explains a lot of uh, uh, things that happened both in, in Tunisia and in Egypt in terms of the, the demise of uh, the struggle for, uh, for democracy. Uh, basically, uh, because of alliances um, that uh, were made between conservative uh, forces, um, right-wing uh, forces, uh, and um, um, sometimes um, external powers and sometimes um, other internal powers, as in the case of, uh, of Egypt. So to be, to be, let's say, down to earth and, and more, more specific, um, the movement in Egypt uh, followed the, the Tunisian movement, that is a grassroots movement of youth uprisings. Usually it was presented in the, in the West as a peaceful movement, as a sort of uh, middle-class-led movement that was uh, prominently using uh, Twitter and, and Facebook. And, and that's a narrative that on the one hand, that was actually criticized often, because on the one hand, it tried to make look uh, these uprisings as you know, Western-friendly, but also as middle-class-led uh, movements. The, it is true that uh, Twitter and Facebook played an important role in mobilization, both in Tunisia and in Egypt. It is true that the middle class had an important role to play, uh, but I think both in Tunisia and Egypt, uh, it was really a, a movement uh, that uh, included people from different social classes. It was a movement that was about uh, uh, the quest for democracy, but also uh, about uh, political, sorry, um, uh, social and economic uh, uh, demands. We tend to forget that uh, in, in many uh, countries in North Africa, Egypt and Tunisia uh, for sure, and in Egypt more so than in Tunisia because the economy in, uh, is in a terrible situation in Egypt compared to the economy in Tunisia. Um, it is not just about uh, people uh, tired from police state, tired from the imprisonment uh, and of deals made with some figures of the opposition. People were also tired because they uh, felt they had, they had no future, no economic future. Um, now, in Tunisia, things went rather well, even though, as, uh, as Lucia has, has mentioned in the, in the beginning, uh, there were uh, some um, assassinations of uh, key figures uh, of, of the left. Uh, but still, in general, the level of violence um, has not reached the level of violence that uh, was reached in Egypt. And in Tunisia, they managed to have uh, a peaceful transition from the dictatorship to um, uh, now two presidents uh, democratically um, elected uh, with campaigns that were rather um, uh, conducted in a, you know, in, a, in a manner that was ethical and corresponding to the norms that we expect in, in the West. 
Um, in Egypt, the, the balance of power uh, was different than in Tunisia, and that led to, uh, well, first, uh, a takeover uh, of, by the military of uh, the power in Egypt right after the toppling of Mubarak, the, the, the former dictator. Uh, then uh, a deal was made between uh, the military and uh, the right-wing organization, uh, the Muslim uh, Brotherhood. I think when we say Islamist, that sometimes sounds a bit nice. Um, uh, I, I have to be uh, clear about my, uh, my position. Uh, the, the Muslim Brotherhood are a right-wing organization. Um, and uh, a deal was made between the military and uh, this organization in order uh, for the military to transfer power to them. And that's not uh, conspiracy theory, that's simply, you know, for those who are informed, it can be easily understood when you see that the military, uh, right after they, uh, they took over, they appointed uh, uh, a, a former member of the Muslim uh, Brotherhood, Tariq al-Bishri, as head of the committee that wrote uh, some constitutional amendments based on which uh, the elections, the following elections uh, were made. And it's uh, thanks to these elections based on the constitution, uh, mainly written by key figures of the Muslim Brotherhood, that the Muslim Brotherhood was able to, to win uh, the elections. Then um, after that, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, simply uh, did not share power with, uh, with other forces uh, in society, even though they got about 25% of the vote, but they were the most organized. Uh, they were supported by the military because they were led to uh, do their, uh, their propaganda during the elections using uh, religious vocabulary. So basically, uh, the, um, the discourse was, if you are a good Muslim, Islam being the religion of the majority in Egypt, then you should vote for the Muslim uh, Brotherhood. That is not the kind of uh, environment that we could consider uh, uh, democratic in Western societies, but that is the kind of environment that brought 25% uh, of the vote to the uh, right-wing organization, the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, now, even though uh, they came to power with only 25% of the vote, then uh, their president uh, was elected uh, with about 51% uh, of the vote. Uh, even though that was the case, they acted as if they had uh, a 90% majority. Uh, and they simply, um, you know, they acted as if they couldn't believe themselves. Uh, we are in power. So they started automatically a policy uh, that in Arabic is called Temkin. In English, it's translated empowerment or enablement. But believe me, in English, that sounds very, very mild. Uh, Temkin is really about putting your people in all key positions everywhere, from the municipal level to uh, the highest possible levels in the cabinet and in, in, the, uh, in the ministry of uh, the uh, president of the republic. Uh, so that, of course, upset uh, forces of the old regime. That, of course, upset uh, uh, the left-wing leaning uh, youth, upset uh, labor organizations, upset everybody who did not identify uh, with uh, conservative religious uh, uh, political parties, uh, that is, uh, the right-wing organizations and their far-right organization, uh, their allies among the far-right uh, organizations. 
so it was normal that um, another conflict would emerge, and in, in that case, another uh, conservative institution uh, stepped in and, and took over, and that was, uh, was the army. So to, to, to wrap up this, um, I think uh, the problem in Egypt is that, contrary to Tunisia, you have very powerful organizations and uh, uh, movements that are not as powerful as, or, and as organized. I would like to think that uh, the Muslim brothers in Tunisia, that is uh, Al-Nahda party, are smart, that's for sure, but also because they, they know very well that the balance of power is about a society that is heavily polarized between people who are very generally uh, secular, uh, following the French model of secularism, uh, very well organized uh, labor uh, unions, and then right-wing organizations uh, that, that we call uh, political Islam. So it's very difficult for any of these groups to claim power for themselves. And if you see the elections that took place in Tunisia uh, after uh, 2011, uh, it was always about deals made between different uh, political parties coming sometimes from extreme um, uh, ends of, uh, extreme opposite ends of the political spectrum. In Egypt, because uh, the Muslim brothers uh, have been part of the regime under Mubarak, the dictatorship, they were always the official opposition. There was always a, a deal with them to give them uh, 25, uh, 30, sometimes 40% of the seats in the parliament. So they, they had the political experience and they were very well organized. So they thought they could uh, take over uh, everything. Uh, now it's the army that is taking uh, over everything uh, in Egypt, again, because the army in Egypt is way more powerful than the Tunisian army. Their connection to power uh, is organic since uh, the 50s contrary to uh, the relatively marginal position of the army and the political system in, in Tunisia. So uh, there is a, an imbalance of power in Egypt that always tempts uh, certain forces to try to uh, take over the whole political system for their own. And what we see today uh, in Egypt, uh, the failure of uh, economic measures, the failure of uh, the, the law and order policies implemented by the current uh, uh, um, uh, autocrat uh, of Egypt, who, who was elected by 97% of the vote, you can't beat that. Um, uh, this failure is simply a, a sort of uh, repetition of the failures of, of the Muslim uh, Brotherhood, who also, when they were in power, uh, committed violence against uh, uh, their opponents, who also uh, failed on the economic level, who also upset uh, everybody that was not uh, uh, either an official member of their organizations or uh, a sympathizer uh, of their uh, politics. And I, I'll just conclude very briefly to pay homage to, to two figures who are, uh, one uh, was a victim of, uh, of the violence of the right-wing organization, the Muslim Brotherhood, when they were in power. Husseini Daif, uh, who was killed by a Muslim Brother sniper uh, during uh, demonstrations against the constitution adopted by uh, the Muslim Brothers. And uh, Yara Salam, who's a young lawyer, activist, uh, who is in jail still today uh, under the current uh, regime in Egypt. Uh, because she uh, used to work for uh, 
an activist lawyer firm that used to defend uh, demonstration, uh, demonstrators who were jailed by the military regime. Emphasizes the role of uh, human rights organizations in Egypt. Yara Salam is an advocate of human rights and she was working for uh, a human rights organization. And this uh, helps me to approach uh, uh, Ala, uh, who in her uh, presentation at the symposium last week uh, emphasized uh, the key role played by human rights organization in the Bahrain uprising, which has been far less mediatized than the Egyptian and the Tunisian uprising. So can you elaborate a little bit on that, the role of the human rights organizations and other civil societies in the Bahraini panorama? Thanks, Lucia. <clears throat> Firstly, thank you everyone for coming today, and it's a real honor to be here. Um, it took us a while to get here, but um, you know we're, we're in the land of Australia. Um, so I hail from a, another island, but I don't know in terms of size how it could compare to Australia. It's about 650 square kilometers. It has a pop Bahraini population, an indigenous population of about half a million. So we're tiny in comparison, just a suburb of Sydney. Um, but, but even given its size, it really punches above its weight in terms of its strategic position. So just a few of us gathering in the center of the capital city, Manama, at the Pearl Roundabout, entailed uh, the invasion of a, Sa a Saudi military army, something that, as, uh, as, one of the as one of the participants, I hadn't ever imagined. Um, doesn't matter how, much, how many degrees you own or, or what experience you have, you just can't imagine what seeing uh, your country being taken over. And in, essentially, the complete sovereignty of the island was forfeited for the survival of the regime. So we, are, we have effectively become a client state of Saudi Arabia. So if you were to talk to any of, of the royal family's Western allies, and I'm also a British citizen, they'll tell you, well, you know, it's not actually your country that, that, that you know, we'd more than happily give you democracy, but the problem is you're very close to Saudi Arabia. And that's where our interests lie. And it's very, an open policy not very complicated to understand. Um, so as during the course of uh, my involvement, I had insights into the movement and I can understand some of the challenges and the struggles that are facing this. It's not simply just desiring dignity. You want dignity, but it's so complicated given the geopolitics. So I believe our island is effectively misplaced. It lies between two great powers. Um, it will essentially need to be under the defense um, umbrella of either Saudi Arabia or Iran, and we have no possibility of self-determination. Now, given that the media always portrays the uprising, uh, you know, unlike before, you know, by the time Mubarak fell on February 11th, protesters' eyes were already set just three days afterwards on February the 14th. It's, val it's Valentine's Day. And we were there actually to express our love for this island, this place, but to actually, for the first time, declare our, our love of the land rather than the love of the because citizenship is divine, defined in the Gulf according to loyalties, loyalties to the royal family. So if you're a good citizen, you must be a completely loyal um, and sub submiss subservient citizen to, to ultimately that. And you demonstrate this constantly in, in your day job, in, in the way you accept public services. You end up paying your mortgage on your house and it's, it's actually a gift from the king. You get a letter saying this is, you have been bestowed this you know, I've paid off my mortgage. It's not a gift from the king, you know. Um, so, 
<laughs> you know, it's literally on every little level, you are reminded constantly that, 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 that these are not rights. These, these, the, anything you, whether it's your scholarship, whether it's the health care system, these are, have been given to you, so you must be grateful for this. And you're constantly reminded. So when the repression came down on our heads like a ton of bricks, the first thing a policeman will say to you, you know, what about that car you drive? What about you, you're earning this much salary? You should be grateful for this. And it's not about being grateful. It's about the idea that even if we do come from an oil-rich state, uh, this, is, this is our right. It's not something... It, it doesn't come... At, we, we have not abrogated political and human rights. So the kind of paradigm shift here, especially in the academic areas, this, this isn't just simply a rentier system whereby if you are oil-rich you no longer have any political or economics right, any economic rights. So, so Bahrain here came to puncture these, some of these ideas. First idea is that if, you, if you're oil rich, you no longer have any political or, or, or human rights. The second idea is that beyond Arab exceptionalism, because for decades, Arabs were somehow different, right? They were passive, they were ruled by these authoritarian regimes, but there, there's some kind of um, uh, predicament, it's an Arab, Specific, there's a specificity, there's a kind of Arabic predicament that exists just in that part of the world. They are somehow quiet and they're accepted, and these dictators are accepted in the international system as the rightful leaders. So Mubarak for years was the recipient of IMF funds and greeted, and our king is given the, the, the red carpet every year at, at, uh, by the, Her Majesty the Queen in the UK. And all these, these autocrats were... were given international legitimacy for, many, for, for decades. So Arabs were somehow different. But when the Arab uprisings began in Tunisia and then in Egypt, well, actually, when we see the toppling of Bin Ali and the deposition of Mubarak, maybe it's something to do with monarchies. Monarchies is different, right? So we couldn't get rid of kings, so there must be something different between republics and monarchies. So we had this idea in, in academia that this is somehow, uh, you know, even though it wasn't theoretically rigorous, but there's somehow this kind of monarchical resilience, exceptionalism. Kings and kingdoms are different. Jordan, Morocco, the Gulf is different. Bahrain's a little bit, there are other reasons. Let's just take that out of the theory, but, you know, monarchies are different. Um, so we came in Bahrain to kind of puncture this idea. No, it's not. There isn't an inherent historical legitimacy. There is every one of these states and every one of these struggles come with a historical specificity. In our case, for example, we've been, uh, if you hadn't known this, but the, the struggle began in the 1920s. Um, and every year, almost rhythmically, every 10 years, there's an uprising. Uh, and the, the cycle, the pattern is so rhythmic that you know, it will begin with unrest and people being angry, then sudden repression, then slowly after many years and using the politics of fatigue, these, these protesters will tire out, they're co-opted, um, eventually people give up and, and then we start all over again uh, 10 years afterwards. And this is exactly what happened this time. So we had this historical specificity, but then it came, uh, whether it's, uh, it came as part of the Arab Spring. But it, when it happened in Tunisia and Egypt, suddenly it hit the shores of Bahrain. There's, oh no, this is kind of, oh, this isn't very convenient, is it? These are Shia protesters. These are, this is a Sun Shia versus Sun sectarianism. That doesn't really quite fit. It's not as sexy. Let's move on. Yeah, okay. So, um, and that, as part of the spectacle, we were kind of like, it was, as, as much as it, some of the images you were seeing, you know, the, the, the complete destruction of the Pearl Roundabout, the, the arrest of doctors, the, the arrest of unionists, as much as you saw the images of, 
uh, you may have seen if you had happened to turn your, your TVs on that one particular day, on, for example, on the March the 14th, seeing the Saudi tanks come in. If you, were, if, if you missed it, you've missed it. You would never hear about Bahrain again. But at the time, if you had seen that, uh, the, 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 the TVs, the media quickly, I mean, the journalists literally left the next day. Like, I was one day bombarded by a few journalists in the country. The next day, I haven't seen. There has not been an international journalist in Bahrain for months. Like, there'll be months on end. No one's gone in. Uh, you know, you're tweeting away. You're killing yourself tweeting away. But there's just no, there's no one in the country covering, uh, covering the situation. So given that kind of narrative, the very destructive narrative that was just kept repeated, as much as we were saying this isn't the reality, the reality is that we have a ruling family that's never integrated with society, and these, this uprising has come to merge state and society together. Uh, that was never told. So the history of this has, has really come to very deep uh, underlying historical and uh, socioeconomic um, reasons that I won't have time to go into in any detail. In response to that, to rise above that, if you have very, actually almost no space, uh, the entire leadership of the opposition uh, is in prison or in jail. Uh, just last week, uh, my friend, uh, one of the most prominent human rights activists in the, in the Gulf, Nabil Rajab, was arrested because he tweeted the images of some casualties in Yemen. But because Bahrain is part of the military coalition, you could not, the, an immediate law was introduced that anyone that would criticize any uh, military role of the state would be, would be charged with the, uh, would be given the charge of sow, sowing public discord. He was arrested the next day and he could be facing up to 15 years imprisonment. And this is no joke, this is very serious. Um, and, and so to rise above this, these accusations um, and the, the belief that these protesters are a fifth column, uh, I believe that We've seen this, pro this proliferation, a mushrooming of human rights NGOs, that the idea that we can seek recourse internationally by referring to certain human rights conventions, saying, look, you know, ultimately, it's irre irrelevant, ir you know, if we discount your, our sect, we are basically human beings. We're asking nothing more than self-determination, uh, the, right, the right to free assembly, the right to free expression, and so on. Now, this kind of offers us some space transnationally to move, to act. But I do believe it's gone beyond that. I do believe that people have, in doing that, has spread this awareness and belief. It's becomes, it becomes like your post-sectarian ideology, post-Islamist ideology. So we also see political groups and Islamic parties adopting human rights discourses. Um, but in doing so, you know, it really kind of ends up killing some of the street protests. It becomes about this procedural... Uh, mechanisms that you use, uh, issuing the same statements over and over again, and and you know going through the, to the Human Rights Council takes years, and it just kind of ends up being moving moving the politics uh, to a different space, compartmentalizing it, depoliticizing it sometimes, and um, you know it's so we struggle with that. But in response, I do believe that Bahrain is a very interesting case study because in realizing those limits. We can still use that language, and we can still embody those human rights by actually enacting it. So, so someone like Nabil Rajab would say, I believe in the right to free assembly, but I'm not going to sit on the fence and just be an observer with my notebook, like most human rights activists, you know, international human rights activists. I will go and I will call for a protest, and regardless of what anyone believes in, they have the right to be here, whether they're an Islamist, whether they're Shia, whether they're Sunni, they have the right to free expression, so I will stand with them today. And so he became a revolutionary leader using the human rights discourse and using it to its effect. So in that, I, I, I argue that 
given that we see a raging debate internationally around uh, the case for human rights. So there's many kind of thinkers now thinking, where has human rights got us? We see actually the world moving towards authoritarianism. 150 out of 193 countries, most of them have ratified human rights conventions, are increasing in number every year. So are we seeing the end of human rights, like we've seen the end of the poverty discourse, for example, so it was all about, you know, early 2000s, it was all about the millennium goals and the end of poverty and giving aid to Africa. Where's that discourse gone? That discourse has moved on. So now we're seeing this debate as well, that the human rights, you know, where's that gone on us? It sounded great after World War II. Um, it, 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 people ratify it, there's no enforcement of it, and it ends up actually killing political movements. So, um, in that case, I'm just kind of in my ideas to play around with those couple of those ideas, but seeing from the, on the ground, from the experience that I've seen, we can turn it around sometimes, but we have, everyone that works within this field needs to understand the limitations and how that blocks you going forward. So, um, I mean, I come at this from that angle, really, and, um, and also when it comes to Bahrain as well, the kind of discourse we always forget is the role of imperialism. So Bahrain is actually, uh, one of the great colonial outposts of the United Kingdom. And so, just December, the British actually announced that they will reopen a British base in Bahrain, and the title in the Economist magazine was We Are Back. And, um, and so, we, you know, we had, as much as we thought we couldn't get worse, but it felt like we were almost, we always knew the British were there, and they've always remained in, in Bahrain, but now this was the final kind of announcement that we're here to stay, and we're gonna be uh, open about this. Um, and so last year there was an investigation in the UK Parliament about the relationship between Britain and Bahrain. And in it, uh, people gave activists and NGOs and think tanks gave evidence. And one of the uh, statements that were made by uh, the British think tank called Rusi is, look, suppression of dis this is a, this is in writing in the UK Parliament, suppression of dissent, uh, uh, suppression, the, the suppression of dissent is carried out everywhere around the world we see that the role of the British in Bahrain is to carry out the suppression in an acceptable manner. And um, I've used this you know, in my forthcoming book. It's just the idea that you carry on, you know, you, we're gonna kill this, we're gonna kill this uprising, but let's just do it in a, in, a, in, a clean, in a slightly better way, in a cleaner way. So we will use tear gas, for example. Like for it, we, uh, my NGO was involved in stopping a shipment of tear gas from South, Afri South uh, Korea. We, got, you know, we, we received some leaked documents that South Korea was planning to ship nearly two million tear gas canisters. And now the population of Bahrain is half a million. And they must have just, uh, their stock must, their supply had run out because they're using on average around two to 3,000 canisters per day in a very small space. So if you, if you live in Bahrain in one of these villages, you have to just reckon with tear gas all the time. And there, you, you know, you, in the space of three minutes, you'll get you know, 100 tear gas. We, this is all, on video, we've, we've, we've documented all the abuse of tear gas, but it's technically, it's a legal, uh, non-lethal weapon, right? So you do this, and then people, when they die, they end up dying of respiratory attacks, of heart attacks, um, in the hospital a few days afterwards. Uh, the, their medical reports say they've died of a heart attack. Nothing relates it to the actual incident, and it's very difficult for you to document and, and provide evidence for that this is actually was used to kill. So it's, this, is what I, this is an example of what I, uh, use, what I think is an acceptable way of suppressing dissent. You kill people but not, make sure it's not documented. So anyone, photojournalists are arrested all the time. And we've seen this in Egypt just by taking a photograph of someone being shot dead. 
even an image as powerful as that, uh, as much as it invokes anger, doesn't actually end up changing anything. The person who, who, who filmed is arrested. The witnesses, the person who carried the victim, ends up being arrested. So what I see happening in Egypt, for me, always is, is, is replaying everything that I've seen in Bahrain happening two years earlier. Because actually, as much as we like to compare across uprisings, if we compare across the authoritarian uh, mechanism, uh, tactics that have been used, there's also much similarity. And so from that point of view, I just think that Bahrain's court is a good example of how you watch a counter-revolution play out in slow motion. But then if it succeeds here, it will be used somewhere else in a similar way. So that's why I feel like, especially what's happened in Egypt is kind of a lag in, in terms of what happens in Bahrain. So the role of Saudi Arabia, for example, even though it, it was, in term, was visible in terms of, of the intervention, military intervention, in Egypt, it's in terms of uh, financing, in terms of political support, in terms of, you know, uh, the iron fist is, is played out and um, take, takes a in very different, manner. in an acceptable way. Yeah. Thank you very much. several other questions to ask to our guests, but uh, as time is running very fast, uh, I would rather uh, uh, leave some space to the audience to ask questions, uh, and then perhaps later I can uh, uh, take the privilege of chairing this session to ask my own questions. So the, there is a microphone uh, around the room. And okay, so I was thinking that I'm going to talk about Egypt and Tunisia, and Bahrain is a different issue, as you said, but then I thought I'd just be, you know, emphasizing what you were talking about. The, I mean, the issue with Bahrain is that there's no media coverage. Basically, this is the main thing, you know, amongst other stuff. There's no media coverage whatsoever, so we don't know what's going on over there. Nobody basically knows about the incidents that you mentioned or the things that happened during the elections that you talked about in a previous session. So how, how can you overcome that? How can you make it a visible, you know, instead of, of it being an acceptable way of repressing a revolution, but it's also invisible, how can you make it a visible, you know, condition so people can react to it and maybe something will happen and we don't know. It's a special case, of course, as you said, it's a very small country, it's very controllable. They can, you know, control who comes in, who comes out, everything is monitored. So what's your view in overcoming that? And also regarding Tunisia, I mean, in Egypt they say al-ijaba Tunis, every time something good happens in Tunisia, in Egypt they say the answer is Tunisia. So, but until al-Baji Qaid al-Sibsi took over, Everybody was like, oh, what's going to happen now, considering that he is, you know, represented as someone of, from the old regime or something. So would you think that this is a setback or is it just a phase or where does it, you know, go from there? And about Egypt, having it gone through the social, you know, revolution somehow and the cultural and the, you know, intellectual revolution by great thinkers like Abdul Habib al-Misiri, like some, Radwa Ashur did some of the work, um, some other public figures, and now it's just struggling with a democrat, democratic, you know, the democratic process. 
So is it stuck now that's in the hands of the military? Or should the youth continue working on the social movements and these organizations? Because this is the, the last resort they have. They don't have anything else to do. So most of them are just stuck in that area. So how do you see this going from now? Thank you. Okay, on the, uh, okay. Thank you for your questions. The uh, Tunisia, I think I, I, uh, I find it really very patronizing when people want democracy and yet someone is democratically elected, no matter who they are. And you say, oh, he's old, he's um, ancien regime. I think so be it. If the people basically have spoken and that's their choice, you know, in our region, in, our part of the world, we really have to play by the book. Like we have to just like stick, you know, to the rules of the game. Because like the rules of engagement are really important. Because once, like you know, you you just like um, find an excuse to, um, in a way, undermine the rules of engagement. That's like the end of democracy. And transition in so many other places always basically led in at some kind of um, synthesis between the old and, and the new. It's, it's really part of that dialectical you know, transition. Um, and I think for Tunisia is, is, is really important uh, because you know, we haven't had this experience before. Look at the Spanish. The Spanish began like, you know, with a clean slate. They never had actually democracy. Uh, you know, after Franco, people basically worked together, and some of them were actually um, uh, part of the, the old regime. Gorbachev, uh, you know, was part of, you know, the old, you know, order. Um, and yet, like, he was a harbinger, you know, for, for good things, you know, for the Russians. Being old, you know, or part of an old system does not really mean that, basically, that is um, negative. Uh, and now sort of we talk about um, the deep state as well, you know, as being basically, you know, the thing that stands, you know, between society and the state or between society and transition to something uh, better. Uh, so really in, in the Tunisian case, I think it's, it's, it's good that Tunisians have accepted, everyone has a, have basically accepted the, the rules of, of engagement and democracy basically will flourish. It will, there will be ups and downs you know, all of the time, and I think so long as everyone accepts what, you know, the, the, the results of the elections. So I don't really have a problem with that at all, you know. For me, that's like my, my own view. I mean, in terms of the media, we've, we, we just can't change that narrative. We, uh, we, the, 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 the sectarian narrative is just one of those things that just sticks and as much as you try and change this, I mean, I speak to journalists and editors as much as I can with the, with the, f the few contacts that I have, and they just say to me, Allah, look, I can't report on another protest and another arrest. It's just, you know, give us, give us something else. I'm like, well, you know, there are over 3,000 people in prison. I mean, we, that's the state, I mean, we're it's slow death, basically. Slow death playing out rather than this, 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 this immediate shocking, Kind of death, and it's the same as what's been happening with the Palestinians for 60 years. I mean, it's it's no different. It, these these when you have an established order um, that that suits uh, the you know the global powers, the media somehow adopts those frames of reference constantly, 
And, um, you know, whether it's kind of come during the Gaza war last year, the reference to uh, victims uh, in wars or not, like the way you term victims, the way you frame things, the discourse that the media uses. I mean, where, uh, the consciousness increases around that, but amongst the niche of the population, but the mainstream just buys it. And so you're constantly faced with, the, with this battle. And, um, and so you feel that the media is, you have to understand the media to know why that is. It's not just simply because, because of any sectarian dimension, it's because of the convenience, it's because of Western foreign policy. It's also because media is a corporate industry right now. So if we look at the BBC or if we look at CNN or Fox News or Al Jazeera, you'll, once you understand the corporate nature of these places or the governmental backing of these, you then understand why certain frameworks and certain discourses have this kind of salience amongst those and it's such a hassle to break through them. Um, and we've seen kind of the regional, I mean if we complain about Western media, regional, the, the local regional media was even worse at inflaming uh, situations in countries in Egypt, the role of Al Jazeera in, in, in Bahrain, the role of Al Jazeera in... But I mean, I have to say, given we say this, I mean, if anyone here tonight is going to go away with something, I'll, I'll urge you to watch uh, one of the best documentaries that I think was made on the Arab Spring is Shouting in the Dark, that was made by the Al Jazeera. So there's something to do with their news reporting, but they did have <coughs> uh, a documentary maker for, for three to four months in the country and she produced, May Walter produced one of the best documentaries called Shouting in the Dark. I mean, it's, it, it, was, it was aired in 2011, so it's three years old, but it will just set the context to understand, or just at least explain what happened. And it's quite a powerful piece, so I'd urge everyone to watch that. Uh, thank you for the, the question. Um, in the paper I, I presented earlier in, in, the, uh, in the conference organized by, by Lily and Shia. I have mentioned this uh, idea of uh, the state trying to create a void in, in the public space and in the realm of politics. And that's actually an idea that a lot of observers uh, and commentators are noticing in Egypt. Now, ironically, even supporters of the current regime are starting to be alarmed by uh, the policies implemented that uh, aim to, uh, at physically and uh, metaphorically creating an absolute void in the realm of politics and on the streets. Um, basically, uh, the police is shooting live ammunition at protesters, so it's very difficult to, uh, to deal with that when you're trying to avoid a civil war. Uh, I, I, I don't have uh, any you know, lessons to give to, to people. I Personally, I have... Uh, step back a bit. I mean, I, I, I used to be with other people like May, for example, uh, a bit of, a, of an, I wouldn't say activist, but an active person, you know, talking to people, doing what I can do, which is to teach or to talk to, to people about, uh, for example, how medenia, how secularism in, in, the, in the sense we propose, uh, medenia, which we could be translated as civil society, um, is probably the best way to have uh, a, a democratic life in, in Egypt. That is uh, a polity that accepts all points of view, all um, uh, reference frameworks, including, of course, the conservative religious one, but provided that none would be presenting itself as the main uh, frame of reference. Uh, 
but now even that is, is not uh, possible because uh, uh, this is, uh, this is a, a regime that is um, heavily influenced by military culture. So the very idea of having diversity in opinions is viewed with, uh, with a, a suspicion. Uh, the very idea of uh, having people who do not simply obey what the state is, uh, is instructing them to do is viewed as a sedition. Uh, again, ironically, even uh, some parties that were supportive of uh, the current regime, uh, when they try to organize not public protests, simply marches in the streets, they get shot at. And um, I'm sure you've heard about uh, the, uh, this left-wing activist, Shaima Sabah, who was shot dead uh, in the streets of Cairo uh, by, uh, by a policeman who, who's now uh, uh, undergoing trial. Um, so even allies of the, of the regime can be shot at. Uh, so no one ventures to, to go out and, and try to voice their, uh, their dissent. However, uh, I mean, history have taught us that people are always creative with uh, the way they express their, their dissent. And I think uh, trying to work uh, in, in civil society um, uh, organizations framework outside of uh, politics can, can be the way to go. So instead of joining an NGO that is about creating uh, political awareness, one can join NGOs that uh, try to uh, help um, disseminate literacy, for example. That is probably the only uh, safely political way to go. Yeah, hi, thanks for speaking. Um, it's important to reflect on these events, I think, and especially, I think one of the speakers mentioned the early days where it was so much hope to see the people in the streets finally, to see Arab people not only as subjects of Western intervention, subjects of wars, but agents themselves of their own futures and their own liberation. And I think it's important to remember those days of Tahrir Square, Pearl Roundabout, all those kind of places where people got together across sectarian lines, the beginning of construction of liberation for all groups. But I think now we have to deal with the sad fact that it's all looking pretty dire, apart from Tunisia. I mean, in Syria, the people there are heroically fighting, but they're being, you know, murdered on both sides by ISIS and Assad in, in Bahrain, you know. There's difficulties. Everywhere there's difficulties. I guess I had a question um, about how, what lessons people are drawing from these experiences and how their resistance has developed and their understanding of the, the structures they're fighting has developed. Because, I mean, my assessment is that the, the deep states in places like Egypt, uh, in Syria and so on, at the height of the revolutions, these were not challenged. Um, the, the fundamental power structures of, of, of you know, the Middle Eastern capitalism, I guess you would say, were not challenged, and I think that's one of the limitations. I mean, people never talked about, in Egypt, the military is not just the military, it actually runs approximately between 20 and 40% of the economy. I mean, this is, a, this is an economic power as well as a, a military power, and, and challenging that required a really deep transformation of Egyptian society, and the same is true in many countries. So I guess what lessons have, have been drawn uh, from the defeats of the first phase of the Arab Spring and what are activists doing to prepare for the next one, which is hopefully to come? So very, very briefly, um, well, thank you. Uh, 
I, I think a, a lot of people uh, can learn a lot of things um, and, and the, the very lesson one can learn from Tunisia, for example, is that uh, no one can rely uh, on, on external support. Uh, the Muslim brothers in Egypt were relying on uh, the support of the government of the United States who publicly supported them uh, taking over power in Egypt even before they were elected. Uh, but then uh, it turned out that the military were uh, ready to, uh, to topple them and to anger the United States, who's also their main ally, uh, because they, they went too far in their attempt to, uh, to take over the whole uh, society. So I think um, the, the Tunisian lesson is important here. Uh, you can never rely on external support. You have to build alliances with uh, other political parties, other currents um, in, in society. And then, of course, uh, the, the Egyptian uh, experience uh, is that you, know, you can never uh, stop uh, asking for radical change. What happened in Egypt is that as, uh, as soon as uh, the army uh, 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 you know, says, okay, we'll take over and we'll organize things, people uh, let the army do things. And I don't think um, that's, uh, that's the wise way to go because we, we saw how, how things end. Now, I'm not advocating that people should uh, continue their physical descent and possibly fight with the army because that is simply uh, 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 crazy. Uh, but there are means of uh, exerting uh, pressure even on the army that are not necessarily uh, violent means. And um, it's not just about uh, techniques of civil uh, disobedience. It's about simply, uh, you know, very respectfully, but very firmly saying, uh, we, we believe this, we don't accept that. And at the end of the day, uh, public pressure uh, can work. The case in point is the, the, um, the activist that was shot by, uh, by police. Uh, a lot of people expressed their outrage. No one went out in the streets to say they are outraged because that uh, young lady was, uh, was killed. But the pressure was so uh, strong in the media in, you know, on coffee shops that uh, the government had to prosecute the, the policeman who, who shot at that uh, lady. So you know, public opinion still can matter, uh, even in ways that we, we do not suspect. Um, uh, I would like to know about uh, what you can say about the role women play in all of this, uh, and whether there is a prospect of women in future at least, or uh, in due course, um, having more access to participation through things like, you know, the internet f uh, and, and such means. What's the situation? Also, we heard in TV, of course, these cases of rapes uh, during, you know, these gatherings. What's, what's the situation? What, um, do you see there any future hope for women taking a bit more part in all of this? Because we hear the Muslim Brotherhood, the military, we're talking about men here. Any insights? I mean, this was one of the remarkable features of, of the Arab uprisings. Is, um, and we saw this across the board in Yemen, like a very conservative country like Yemen, to Egypt, to Bahrain. I mean, for me, it felt very natural to be a participant and an organizer, not just a participant or or be, it didn't feel like I was, there was, when we were at the Pearl Roundabout, it was complete, there was no segregation, there's something had changed. And it, because I just felt like we had uh, a fresh page to start from. And when you start from a fresh page, 
and you're there and you're present, you can begin to draw your destiny. You can bring it to say, well, no, no. If we're going to start a new group, if we're going to start a new NGO, if we're going to start a new political movement, here we're here. So rather than kind of fixing the old order, where, where even amongst kind of traditional opposition groups, these were all very patriarchal, patriarchy in the house, patriarchy in civil society, patriarchy in, in the state, here we were trying to redraw that map again. So it felt like it was a chance for everyone to participate, women, particularly women, to take part and to lead and to organize. Um, but slowly as things change, I mean, I'm seeing that re patriarchy get recreated again uh, in homes, in, 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 the, in opposition movements, let alone in government. So that's, that's what kind of what frightens me a bit is as we regress back to the, as the old order kind of is triumphs, we, re, we recede back again to these kind of patriarchal structures. But I mean, we have to rethink everything about our strategies again. And one of the things I'm trying to do is to tell women, maybe we need to think about women's rights at this point. Maybe we didn't think it was time then, but now we have to start a movement with it to change socially within ourselves. But things had changed. Women were, because they were needed, and actually if you look across, uh, I'm an economist, so like when we look at um, the idea of segregation, uh, women's role in the labor markets, women's role in, in, in society in general, it's driven by need and necessity. And um, as we were needed early on in the, in, the, in the uprisings. Women needed to be there, their bodies needed to be there. Uh, you know, you, it was about the physical, it was about the territory. As, kind of, as, as things recede and get re-territorialized by the state, and our bodies are not there, we use our, our voice, we use our, our, our pens, we use lots of other tools that women continue to struggle in different ways. But it's interesting in countries where there's more violence. In, where, in Syria, for example, immediately when it turned violent, you know, women disappeared from the scene. Um, in Yemen as well. So it's important to kind of support as much as we can uprisings in the early phases. That's, that's when things, there's a possibility of things really changing. So it really is a point where we reflect now and we just really fear for the future bit. But I don't know whether the guy at the back said, you know, we have to accept this defeat. Defeat would just mean that people have, have halas, they've gone back to being disengaged, passive again. The, the thing is, it's like pushing that, the, 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 the lid on the bottle, but the, the, it's steaming up even more. So the, the issues, you're not only more enraged, it's, it's just ready to re-explode again at any moment. So it's this idea of this, it will take time, it's a long revolution, it will, it will have its ups and downs and it will go through cycles, but it's not, we're not at that point of submission yet where we can say CC is one, for example. It just still feels we're on the edge and politics is on, the, the cleavages and the tensions and the fractures are even more uh, entrenched but even more dangerous of opening up again at any point in time. So I don't think anyone's gone back, taken the back seat and said, oh, well, you know, it's over now. Um, we go back to, I mean, we go back to our daily ordinary lives because that's just the nature of life, right? We're in our fourth years, activists are tired. The politics of fatigue has set in, people are disillusioned. Your friends are, half, half of your activist friends are in jail. You're just trying to support their, fa you, can be you barely have enough energy to support their families, let alone to even fight for their freedom anymore. But at the same time, you know, you're not accepting the status quo. So, I mean, I'm, I'm more hopeful. And I, you know, at this point, I just want to say, look, I, uh, I always look, if I, if I ever want to get inspired or hopeful, I look towards the Palestinians and Mahmoud Darwish, you know, he put it beautifully. He said, I will continue serenading happiness beyond the eyelids of, beyond the frightened eyelids. 
Um, sorry, I will can go on serenading happiness some, somewhere beyond the eyelids of frightened eyes, for from the time the storm began to rage in my country, it has promised me wine and rainbows. There is something about this place that it's worth fighting for that keeps people going. Thank you for your question. I think really for me, really, it's uh, the Tunisian case is, is really different from uh, lots of the other places in uh, the Middle East. First of all, uh, the social revolution begun by Bourguiba has meant that uh, there is a level of visibility you find in Tunisia which you don't really find in other places. And I assure you, if you go like, you know, and look at the membership of the generate, uh, General Federated Union of Tunisian Workers, I think it's like 50-50 in terms of membership. So basically, uh, employment, you employ women, you build basically some kind you know, of stratum uh, of women who will be out there fighting you know, um, along men. Um, and if you look at the beginning of the revolution, like you know, from the uh, 28th of December up to the 14th of January, when Ben Ali basically was asked, uh, the main uh, women, uh, the main mobilizers of the uh, trade union movement in Tunisia were actually women. Women were basically the ones who went out there in the street mobilizing people to protest. So I think really that specificity in, in Tunisia is like, you know, in a way at least commands attention and is in need of, of, of study. Um, in a way we are a little bit sort of immune from the Gulf, like, and from probably like you know the rest of, of, of the region. As I said, you had basically the personal state scout since 1956, and you've got uh, look at the debate, the debate about the so-called uh, status of women in the new constitution. It went like through six months. Uh, of deliberation within the constituent assembly, and women at the end of the day. Uh, yeah, they, they made the Islamists actually uh, see eye to eye with them, that it's about equality of status and not, um, I think it was partnership. The Islamists wanted to change, to modify the term to partnership, because really partnership can be equal and unequal. And that was like you know, the point of view um, that women addressed you know, in the Constituent Assembly. And today also, like in the newly democratically elected parliament of Tunisia, you've got... Uh, nearly 40% of the members are women, which is really, I think, given in Australia, you don't have that. And I know sort of in Australia, women really have fought, like, you know, uh, you know, won lots of battles. Sorry? Absolutely, yeah. I have no doubt in my mind that Tunisian women actually are really part and parcel of the Tunisian revolution. There's no doubt about that. Like, okay, <laughs> well, she said that the Tunisia is the, yeah, the answer, right? That's what she said, yeah. Definitely, yeah. But really, employment, employment is really important. Women have got basically, have carved out a margin of existence and autonomy, which you don't have in other places. Women who work basically become independent. They don't really need men. And I can really, I can really challenge any one of you to go to Tunisia and catch up a train at 5 a.m. from the coastal uh, town of Sousse and do the ride all the way to Tunis, and it's like a commuter train. Uh, it's a two-hour uh, trip. 
uh, stops nearly every five minutes. Every five minutes, like people basically board this train, half of them were women, which really you don't find in other countries like at 5 a.m., women going on their own to work. That is really remarkable. I think we're talking really about a remarkable you know, society. This is really important as well. That's a revolution in its own. You, know. you cannot really build revolutions if you don't have actually a social revolution that precedes the political revolution. That's like, you know, it's Scott, you know, Scott Paul, you know, Theda Scott Paul, you know, said. Yeah. And to, to talk about which kind of women do we want in power? You know, the, the crackdown against uh, the civil society and the NGOs in Egypt is led by a minister who's a woman. So, and uh, he... The National Council for Women uh, was part of the Mubarak regime, was an integral part of the Mubarak regime, so perhaps we need women who fight against the, you know, the mechanisms of co-optation and of replication of the patriarchal system. Now there are women who feel quite, quite comfortable within the patriarchal system, you know, if they... And, and, and that speaks to, uh, in the case of Egypt, that speaks to the a rather prominent place women play. I mean, you have women who are part of the political system, who collaborate with dictatorships, and women who are in opposition, both uh, within the Muslim Brotherhood or within uh, democratic parties. Uh, I think, um, I, I don't want to sound uh, desperate, actually, um, I always uh, advocate the politics of hope. Uh, and again, the Palestinian example is, is always inspiring. You know, Palestinians keep fighting for the rights uh, in spite of all odds. And uh, a prominent uh, Palestinian-American, Edward Said, uh, has coined uh, this expression of the, the politics of, uh, of hope to talk about this continuing struggle of the Palestinians, even though they are always the underdogs. I think um, in the case of uh, many Arab societies, there is hope because a lot of people uh, believe that change has already uh, started and uh, there's no way uh, for change to, to stop. Uh, the real victories that were achieved by uh, revolutionaries in the Arab world were social. And, and one instance of that is uh, uh, the younger people uh, challenge of uh, male patriarchal authority. There's an interesting film called Word of Witness and it's about a woman, a young woman, who goes to, uh, to demonstrations every day and, uh, and the camera is following her, discussing uh, with her father and her mother about uh, you know, why do you need to go? Aren't you afraid for your own safety? It's also interesting to see that it's actually the mother who is telling the, the young lady, don't go out, you should stay. Uh, a good girl should stay at home, etc." And it's the father who's uh, you know, trying to help his daughter. Uh, that's an example of how mentalities are, are changing, and it's not just about older people trying to tell younger women to stay at home. Uh, the other thing is, uh, is about gender. Uh, women uh, were uh, out there in, in public um, uh, squares from day one of uh, revolutions, both in Tunisia and in, uh, and in Egypt. Um, now, of course, because of the physical violence, uh, and particularly because of uh, the organized rape, uh, and that is a, a police tool that is unfortunately used uh, by, uh, for example, the Egyptian police. I, I can speak to that because I'm, I'm a bit familiar with that. And, and again, uh, under uh, the military government right after the toppling of the dictator Mubarak, under the right-wing government of the Muslim Brotherhood, 
under the current uh, military government of Egypt. Uh, rape squads uh, always work. They are sort of you know, independent entrepreneurs. Um, but still women go out there. And, and that is, uh, that has radically changed. Under Mubarak, it was uh, only sufficient to send two, three thugs. They would touch uh, a few women inappropriately and women would completely disappear. Now, even uh, with this physical level of violence against women, women keep coming back to, uh, to streets when, uh, when there are demonstrations. In, at the, in the extent of that being possible. Uh, uh, and, and you can tell from the number of victims, uh, both women from the Muslim Brotherhood and women from democratic parties, both opposition parties or opposition movements, are prominently uh, in jail or prominently among uh, the, the dead uh, under police uh, live ammunition. Can be okay. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thanks very much. I just wanted to ask, just on on the issues around like poverty and class and things like that. I know were a big part of the revolutions. Like in Egypt, one of the main demands for bread in Tunisia was the unemployed man setting himself on fire. That got you know. So the years of neoliberalism, the economic crisis, has produced this incredible poverty and discrepancy between the rich and the poor. Have, have there been any changes in these sort of social conditions, or does this continue to feed uh, anger and mobilisation against the against the um, the regimes? Like you've mentioned, the unions in Tunisia being strong, but are the level of strikes still high? Are people winning uh, higher wages, winning employment? Where are these struggles at? Thank you. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> Yeah, thank you for the question. Uh, something about Tunisia, despite the fact that you have actually a, uh, an incipient democratic process, you have daily protests everywhere. Basically, really, um, if you can like um, invoke the notion of peoplehood for the first time actually ever, you've got some kind of peoplehood, what I call like peoplehood. In Arabic, it's like almost harak, it's continuous. And lots of these protests are actually about that, like um, engaging with the government to get uh, something, for instance, worked out in terms of um, wages. And the trade union movement, as you know, in Tunisia, has actually chosen to be independent. It could have actually uh, fielded candidates you know, to uh, parliament, but it has refused to do so, so that basically it maintains some kind of autonomy from the government so that it can actually, uh, I guess, really uh, present workers' demands to um, you know, the government. Um, of course, like the, the problems are still there. In Tunisia, I guess, in, in, like in elsewhere in, in, in the region, you've got basically the south and the hinterland completely uh, deprived of the um, slicing of the cake, as it were. Uh, and that remains you know, the case. And I think that will be always the challenge, whether there will be a leveling of the playing field in terms of distributive justice. That's really important. It's really true, people like, you know, are interested in freedom and democracy and so on and so forth. But if you look at the latest Pew survey, um, and uh, it showed that people actually are interested more in this distributive justice, that people actually can um, get you know, uh, social justice, um, I guess, really represented politically far more vigorously than has been uh, the case. 
So really the South, where Sidi Bouzid, where you know, the whole thing began, is still the same, nothing really has changed. But like you know, the current government is actually holding meetings next week there for the first time ever in this town. And that was actually you know, the work of trade unionists. The, the fact that you've got like, you know, that, that third power in Tunisian politics, you know, as uh, Walid you know, mentioned, you know, this, this, this equilibrium is really important. So the game is not driven only by political parties and the, the assembly or the uh, parliament. It's also really by the trade unions. And they're really like a force to be reckoned with. Uh, remember, all of this is really cumulative. Tunisia came so close to unhinging the government of the national mentor, Bourguiba, in 1981, 1981, and that was the work of trade unions. So basically what happened in 2011 was not really, did not really come you know, from uh, a vacuum. There was basically an earlier struggle by trade unions, 1981, 1978, 1984, and I guess really 1981, uh, the army had to interfere, you know, despite the fact that it's actually a small army, but like coercive force had to be utilized brutally to stop like the trade union movement uh, from basically threatening you know, the state. And one of the, I guess, the, the most vigorous leaders, uh, Habib Ashur, was imprisoned and he died in prison. He's actually you know, a historical figure you know, of a trade union movement. In fact, like, you know, when you think of the phalanx of leaders in, in Tunisian political history, three of them are actually from the trade union movement. The guy who introduced uh, trade union movement to Tunisia, Muhammad Ali, and then Farhat Hashad, who was killed by the French in 1954, and basically institutionalized trade unionism in, in Tunisia. And then the third one is Habib Ashur, who basically refused the, the, the handouts of the providential state. This is really what we have in the Arab world. You've got like you know, this patronage clientelism. It's, you know, what's called in, 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 uh, I guess in the parlance of political scientists, a corporatist system. So it's like a hierarchy whereby the state um, supports and sponsors uh, trade unions. And I think this is really the beauty of what's happening now in Tunisia, that trade unions basically now rely on the fees from members, they don't really get any handouts from the government. And that is, obviously, that's going you know, to empower trade unions you know, to be far more representative and doing like a better job than ever before. Especially really now, this really historic moment, you need also like really an honest trade union movement you know, to be able to engage you know, with that kind of struggle. Um, so I think really I'm really hopeful, you know, it's, it's, you know, it will change for sure, you know, it's slowly, slowly. Um, yeah, this is a really important point, and this is where, when I, when I established the RNGO, was to look at the, uh, not just the socioeconomic, look at these issues of um, state, uh, pri privilege, state privilege and class privilege. So, uh, in, in the Gulf, you know, we have a particularly unique situation whereby uh, huge dependence on migrant workers. So, I mean, even in Bahrain, 50% of the population are migrant workers. Uh, a little bit Western, but mostly uh, from South Asia, and uh, and I think everyone knows about the rights of migrant workers here. And on so you have this this very clear social hierarchy in these countries, whereby you know they're they're at the bottom rung uh, of the ladder, and then you get to the to the higher end. In other countries like Tunisia or Egypt, it was Mubarak and his sons, or Ben Ali and his wife. Um, when it comes to Bahrain, it's an entire family that is. Uh, considered a super citizen, the privileges that goes to you know, 2,000, 3,000 members of these families that have 
in, um, that have entrenched themselves across the entire government state system um, at the apex of the complete apex and you know, institutions are created to accommodate this family are just absolutely incredible the, you know just by by virtue not even you know we're not talking about the first there's degrees within the royal family because depending on what so there's hierarchies within the royal family and you know that's how far these countries are uh, uh, so you know you, you immediately when you land you 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 place yourself within this social hierarchy and on the back of that you realize where you belong and what economic uh, provisions you, you're entitled to, but you as a citizen are placed, regardless of your class, in a precarious position because citizenship itself is conditioned on this position, on, on your loyalty. So for me, you know, just, this, just holding this passport uh, places me as a precarious subject in this place. So class here is not just financial or economic, it's purely the proximity you have with the, the broker, so you, uh, to, to do anything in the country you need a broker, and this broker has to be this sheikh or that sheikh. Um, the smallest transactions, you, you know, you want to open a business, I have to, I'll call my friend here, I call, you know, so it's not, it's, I don't know, it's something more than nepotism, it's not about your contacts, it's literally, um, it's literally pervades every aspect of your life, what scholarship you get, what, what hospital you get treated in, so, the Gulf societies kind of have this class issue as a major issue. So the protesters, the first thing they did in Bahrain, for example, was they marched outside the, the financial harbor carrying a one dinar, which is about $3 in their hand, because the prime minister had purchased the land and the building for $3, and there was a document to prove it. So it's, it's the, the inequality, economic and wealth inequality, really is the, uh, the driver. Even though it's higher income slightly in Bahrain, it doesn't mean that this inequality is any less or any less bad or as bad as, for example, Bouazizi trying to sell bread on the street to someone who can't find a job or someone in Bahrain, even if it belongs to this rich society. So this proximity to powers, this inequality of wealth really is, was critical to, the, to, to our uprising. So very briefly, because I'm sure all of you are tired, um, uh, in, in Egypt, the uh, labor movement was uh, an important player in the, in the uprising. Uh, and still today, uh, ironically, again, the only uh, protests that are allowed by or tolerated by the regime are those of the labor movement. As long as uh, the demonstrations are not requesting the change of regime or democracy, uh, when it's only about uh, very specific demands in this factory, uh, in that region, uh, regarding uh, that uh, entrepreneur uh, requests that are very specific about increases uh, of wages that do not challenge the state authority, but that demand some uh, uh, financial gains for uh, the workers, these are tolerated. So in a way, we, we are blessed by the social injustices that are still out there in Egypt because this keeps the the movement of, of dissent alive. However, definitely the economy is uh, in a worse shape than it used to be in 2011 when Mubarak was toppled. And I think that is orchestrated by the regime to keep people tired and always looking for their uh, livelihood. Thank you very much. Uh, so I would like to thank again all the speakers for uh, their insightful um, <laughs> interventions. And uh, I would like to, on behalf, uh, we also would like to thank the speakers. Uh, 
uh, with a little present and uh, Associate Professor Lili Rahim, uh, who is the convener of the State Religion and Society Networks, who is uh, offering you the present. Thank you.